Amen. Father, we, um, we stand before you right now so thankful that you're our shepherd, God, that we shall not want because you lead us. Um, we have our stores res- souls restored because you restore them, God, that we have someone that doesn't just direct us from heaven but walks along- alongside us in life, that you're with us in the valleys, you're with us in the mountains, you carry us home when we stray, you carry us to the end of our days, Lord, and we're, we're thankful for that, God. It's, that- it's the God that we worship this morning. And well, we pray uh, for those that are sick. We pray for uh, the churches around Richmond Hill, around Savannah, that you'd um, lead them. Your Holy Spirit would be with them as they preach your word, that it would go out in power. Lord, change our nation. Um, God, change this world. Come again, Lord Jesus, we pray. God, we're here until you return. Um, so we ask you to come. Come quickly, Jesus. Um, I pray that as we open your word uh, together, that you'd use it, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. God, that you'd open our eyes to see uh, marvelous things in your law. We love you. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Uh, my name is Coleman. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, it's a beautiful day outside. Um, I woke up this morning and I thought, surely it cannot be 5.30. Like, it, it feels like it's 3. Um, and, and at 7.30 it was still dark, right? So if y'all are kind of groggy coming in here, somebody told me that they think the second service is going to be packed. Everybody's going to wake up and be like, uh-uh, back to sleep. Um, so thankfully y'all are here with us today. Um, we're going to jump into our reading right away because we have a lot of text to read. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, and to prepare you, it's about 62 verses, Okay. Um, so it's going to feel long, but that's okay. Uh, I think this is an intentional part of the sermon. I'm not just reading this to, to get it over with. I want to read it. It's really interesting. I was, uh, as I was reading, it talks about synagogues in here, and I was looking at what synagogues were and reminding myself, and synagogues were these, uh, it wasn't the temple. It were these places that the Jews would meet. There were hundreds of them in Jerusalem, and they would meet together, and they would read the word. Someone would just stand there and read the word to everyone, and then one of the rabbis would then exposit what he read right? And that's exactly what we base our church model on now. And so I think the reading of God's word together is a really important part of what we do. So this is God's word, and all of God's words are true. Um, So Acts 6, verse 8, uh, look with me. If you don't have your Bible, pull it up on your phone. It'd be helpful to follow along. So I'm going to start in verse 5. It's Stephen's introduction. We're going to hear about Stephen today. Um, Andrew read this last week, verse 5 of Acts 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, And they chose as deacons Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then slip down to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. A little bit of background. These are all Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem. Stephen was a Greek speaker. The apostles were Aramaic speakers. So this is the first Greek-speaking evangelist that's going out on the streets, and he's sharing the gospel with these Greek speakers. And so all these Greek-speaking rabbis are angry. So they're coming out to dispute with him. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. And brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases speaking words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they couldn't beat him in an argument, and so they instigated men to come up with these um, blasphemous things that, that Stephen said, and it got all the people that were following him riled up, and they dragged him before the council, the Sanhedrin. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. The crowd turned on him, and they said, crucify him. So he's now before the Sanhedrin, just like Peter and John were a couple weeks ago, just like all 12 apostles were last week or two weeks ago. So that's where Stephen is. He's standing here knowing that, that he's basically signed his own death warrant, and it says his face is shining like the face of an angel. Uh, and let's go into chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, here comes the speech. It's going to take a while, so y'all get ready. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living in Canaan. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But, God said, I will judge the nation that they serve. And after, they shall come, after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And now we're going to go to the next part of the story. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom over Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill us as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled and didn't dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Jesus. This Moses, whom they had previously rejected, said, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent is both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This Moses was the one who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. This is the one who received living oracles to give to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the 40 years of wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. So therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? And then here's his conclusion. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Nine minutes. Praise God. Um, all right. Uh, thus says the word of the Lord. Um, what happens next is Stephen is stoned, okay? Because he gives this long speech, all right? And, and they know all of this. He's teaching these leaders and these scribes and, and these, these men who know more than Stephen does about the word. And he goes and, and he offends them by giving them a history lesson. But what he does is he points out things in Israel's history that they've never thought about before. And he leads them to the conclusion that Israel, the nation of Israel, is stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and resists the Holy Spirit. And then he says, so do you. And then what they do is they get angry, they grind their teeth, they rush on him, and they stone him. All right? So that's the end of Stephen, but Andrew's going to talk about that lovely passage next week. Um, this week, we're going to stick with the speech. Okay? So what Luke is doing here in this passage is he is drawing a juxtaposition between two people. He's got Stephen on the one hand. All right? And then he's got the nation of Israel as a whole on the other. So Stephen is the first type of person. And, and Luke is, is drawing our attention to this man, Stephen. And Stephen is full of grace and power. He's out on the streets. He's doing signs and wonders. He's filled with the Spirit. He's got incredible peace and joy. He's about to get stoned, and yet his face looks like an angel. Right? That's pretty, pretty good calm. Right? Um, he's overflowing with wisdom. These people dispute him. He doesn't care who they are. He didn't care that they got the crowds riled up. He's walking in confidence in the Lord. This man, Stephen, is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, right? And when I read that, I think, man, that's what I want, right? I want to, be that, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to have that kind of grace and power in my life. And yet, I don't know about you, but when I hit tough moments in my life, when I hit moments where I feel like life is opposing me, 
what I often find is not grace and power, but a deficit, right? When I come home from work and the kids are a mess and my wife is a mess and everyone's a mess, I'm finding I'm like scraping the bottom of the peanut butter jar for energy, right? Anybody feel like that sometimes? Or you go to work and it's like everything's piled on, piled on top of you. Your boss is awful, right? Um, everything's piled on, I was kidding. Uh, I looked at Andrew there. Everything's piled on top of you. And it's like, what do I do here? And, and you're, just, you're just frenetically working. That's what I find. But Stephen finds himself full of grace and full of power. What does that mean? How does Stephen do that? How does he walk in that way? We're going to look at that. The next type of person is the Jews. You look down through their history, and the Jews constantly, again and again, were thwarting God. Every time God tried to provide a deliverer, they thrust him aside. When God called Abraham to go somewhere, he said, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go halfway. I'm going to stay with my father. Um, when, he, when he provided deliverance from Egypt, they instead made a golden calf and worshipped it. He gave them the temple. They started worshipping the temple. They kept again and again and again turning against God. They were faithless. They resisted the Holy Spirit. So he's drawing this juxtaposition between these two types of people. And he wants to tell us what the difference is. Okay? So that's the question. What is the difference between Stephen on the one hand and the Jews on the other hand? And he tells us that in the bookends for this passage. So let's look at the first bookend. Look at verse 5 in Acts chapter 6. He's talking about Stephen here. And he says, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 8. Three verses later, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So Luke's doing something here, okay? He's trying to draw our attention. He uses the exact same phrase, but different words. He says first that he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and second, he's full of grace and power. And what Luke's saying here is he's not saying these are four attributes of Stephen. What he's saying is, is, is that when he's seeking to describe the tone and tenor of Stephen's life, when he zooms out and says, how do I describe the man Stephen? He says, that man walks by faith and he walks by the Holy Spirit. And then when he gets to this moment of ministry, he says, because he walks by faith in the Spirit in his life, he's full of grace and power in this moment, right? A lot of times what we do is we find ourselves in a moment lacking in grace and power, and we're wondering why. And it's because we're not walking by faith and walking by the Holy Spirit in our broader lives. Yet Stephen was. The reason that he had grace and power is because he walked by faith and walked by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, look at verse 51, chapter 7, verse 51, the other bookend to this passage that Luke draws our attention to. He describes the Jews, and they're different. They're not full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. They are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's one attribute. And they resist the Holy Spirit. So instead of walking by the Spirit, they resist the Spirit. And instead of walking by faith, they're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, okay? So two illustrations for the same thing. So I'm going to unpack one of those for you. Which one you want, you want me to unpack? Stiff-necked or uncircumcised? Um, so stiff-necked. Uh, so what he's saying with stiff-necked, uh, we went on a uh, horse riding trip to Wyoming a couple times when I was younger, and I had a brother that's six, younger, six years younger than me, and, and they put us each on a horse, and we had a horse for 12 days. And we'd ride up into the mountains, and I, raise your hand if you've ridden a horse before. Buddy? All right, it's a good experience. You ride a horse, and, and you hold the reins, and how do you steer the horse? You pull the reins, right, one way or the other. Are you actually pulling the horse? No, you're not. You're just pulling the reins, and you let the horse know, okay, I want to go this way. So you turn its head, and it goes that way, right? So we all had horses that you, you turned that way, except James, my youngest brother, and he was like six at the time. And they stuck him on Moses, okay? And Moses was this really small horse that just moseyed along. And, and Moses did whatever Moses wanted to do right? And it didn't matter if James yanked it this way or yanked it that, that way. Moses went the way Moses wanted to go. And it was hilarious because we were just driving, riding our horses through the mountain, and Moses would be moseying along behind us. And, 
and he'd get really far back because he was going so slow in, the, in our Wrangler, as he was called, our cowboy. Uh, he said, don't worry about him. It'll be fine. And my mom's like, that's my five-year-old. Like, he's way back there. And then all of a sudden, she looked back, and, and the five-year-old was gone, right? And then and the, and the cowboy would be like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then like a mile later, we'd see Moses coming up in front of us, and he just went, did a shortcut, right? Right through the woods. Like, Moses did what Moses wanted to do. Why? He was stiff-necked right? He was not willing to be led. Why is that? It's because they always stuck kids on Moses. And after a while, with kids up there going, yeah, 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 like back and forth, Moses is like, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. Like, I'm not listening to this kid. He had no faith in his rider, right? A, a horse that has a flexible neck that listens has faith in its rider, but Moses didn't. In the same way, these people, the Israelites, had no faith in their rider. They had no faith in God. They lost faith in God. And so they said, God, I, I don't want to listen to you, so I'm going to get stiff-necked and I'm going to go the way I want to go, right? It's a response of lacking in faith. So they resisted the Holy Spirit, and they were stiff-necked. They went their own way. They were walking by sight and not by faith. So what I want to do the rest of the time with us for the next 20 minutes is I want to walk through um, what does walking by faith in the Holy Spirit look like? And this is not Christianity 2.0, okay? This is the Christian life. Um, and, and our default is not walking by faith. Like we, our default is walking stiff-necked and resisting the Spirit, all of us. Uh, the band was over the other night, and they were talking about tattoos, uh, getting a tattoo. And one of the guys, Justin Reed, call you out, he said, well, my wife told me I didn't come with tattoos, so I can't get any, right? It's like on, on his package when she married him, it said, you know, tattoos not included, Right? And on our package, out of the box, you have no faith and you resist the Holy Spirit, right? So like on your box, it's like faith and Holy Spirit not included. And so the question in the Christian life is how do I, rather than walking by what I see in my own wisdom, how do I walk by faith? And rather than dipping into my own resources, how do I walk by the Holy Spirit? So we're going to go through the sermon and we're going to look at what does that look like? Um, and we're going to compare Stephen, and we're going to compare the Jews, okay? So we've got five ways of walking by faith in the Holy Spirit. And what I would encourage you to do is write these down. Um, on your hand, on a piece of paper, on a Connect card, on your Bible, wherever, write these five things down. Um, and I would encourage you, uh, not that my words are great, but I think this is a really important passage for the, your whole Christian life. Like, this, is a, this is a pretty broad stroke. And I'd encourage you each day this week to pick one of these points and to examine your life. Take 15 minutes in the morning and pray through one of these and ask the Lord, am I walking by faith in the Spirit in this area, or am I walking by my own wisdom and resisting the Holy Spirit? So let's start with the first one. To walk by faith in the Holy Spirit is to order our lives around God's kingdom. Order our lives around God's kingdom. So walking by faith changes our priorities. It changes our priorities. So we look at Stephen's life. Why was Stephen on the street? What was he doing on the street? Was he not busy? Did he not have other responsibilities? Well, I think he did. Um, he wasn't on staff with the church, right? He was just a lay deacon, and he had just been given this massive responsibility of making sure all these Hellenistic widows were fed. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you think about that time and that culture, there were hundreds of widows everywhere because men would get sent off to war, and they would die, or they'd be off working somewhere or whatever it was. And not only that, but there are thousands of people in this church. So this is, we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of widows that he's in charge of, of loving on, caring for, making sure they're fed, and yet he's out on the street. He's out here on his free time. It's because he was prioritizing the kingdom of God. He was going out, he's going in these synagogues, preaching the gospel. He, that was not his calling. That was the apostles' calling. And yet Stephen was prioritizing the kingdom of God. But when you look at the Jews, it's a little bit different. 
If you look with me um, in chapter 7, in, in verses 2 uh, through there, we have Abraham, right? Um, and Abraham, uh, when, when God called him to go to Canaan, where did he go? What city did he go to? Haran, okay? Or Haran. He goes to Haran. He goes partially the way, right? Haran is still in Mesopotamia. It's just like 40 miles down the road. So he says, okay, God, I'll, I'll go where you want me to go. And he goes 40 miles down the road, and God told him to leave his father. But we find a couple verses later, his father's still with him, right? So Abraham, instead, we, we always hear about Abraham as this man full of faith, right? Abraham was not full of faith, right? He was stiff-necked. He went his own way. He did partial obedience. He said, you know what, God, I want to obey you. I want to walk with you, but I, I want to stick around with my father, and I don't want to leave my land. So I'll partially obey and that's what happens in our hearts. When we get our priorities shifted around, we begin partially obeying God. We say, God is a piece of the pie of my life. He gets my Sunday mornings. He gets maybe a Wednesday night group. He gets my morning time, my quiet time, and maybe a family worship time a week. Like, that's what he gets. And yet, he's not the central organizing principle of your life. You don't, you don't order your life around the Lord. And I think a lot of us, what we do is we try to keep one foot on the ski of God's word and his kingdom. We try to keep one foot on the ski of our life right? Let me tell you, that'll give you the splits every time, right? Because they go different ways. And what's going to happen is eventually you're going to have to pick one. You have to take your foot off. And what we automatically do is we take our foot off the kingdom. That's what Abraham did. He said, I will follow you as long as my skis align, but the second your kingdom diverges from my kingdom, I'm going to stick around here, right? So are we prioritizing the kingdom of God? What is the central organizing principle of your life? Think about it for a second. That's the question I want you to think about maybe on Monday. What is the central organizing principle of your life? What do you order your life around? Is it the kingdom of God? Let's go to number two. To walk by faith in the Holy Spirit is to respond to life according to God's sovereignty. To respond to life according to God's sovereignty. It changes our... Hang on, I changed my word here, I think. It changes our perspective. That's right. Sorry, my notes are wrong here. It changes our perspective. So when Stephen started his day... Okay, think about Stephen, beginning of this day, he's, he's, he's martyred at the end of the day, he starts his day, he was not planning on dying, okay? I guarantee you that. Like, he wasn't planning on going on the streets, getting, getting stoned, right? He, like, he got appointed to be a deacon a week before this, and when the apostles were meeting with Stephen, they said, hey, this is the, these are the responsibilities, we want you to serve a two-year term, like, you think you can do this? Stephen said yes, right? He, he, he said, yes, I'll do it. Like, he didn't tell them, well, that's going to be a problem, because tomorrow I'm planning on going on the streets and getting stoned. Okay? Like, that was not his response. He said, no, I'm, I'm sticking around. And yet, when God threw a curveball on him, when all of a sudden he was dragged before this council, he was given the same accusations as Jesus, the crowd's angry at him, he knew he was going to die. He said, okay, this is God's plan. And yet he had the peace of an angel, right? He said it perfect peace. It changes our perspective. Um, but when you look at the patriarchs in verse 9 of chapter 7, they're a little bit different. You see, the way that they had their life planned out, there were 12 brothers, and who was the one that was in charge? Firstborn, Reuben. And then next was the secondborn, and then the thirdborn, and then the fourthborn, and the fifthborn. So they had a, a line marked out. That all cultures did. So the firstborn son would have the, the finances, and he would be in charge of the house, right? And yet what happened was, is God made it clear that Joseph, number 11, was going to be the ruler of the brothers. He was the favorite son, and so all the brothers got angry because it was against their expectations. That wasn't their plan. And so what they did was, instead of trusting God like Stephen did and saying, okay, God, this was my plan, and then this is your plan, I'm going to trust your sovereignty that this is better, they said, no, we're going to thwart God's plan. 
We're going to stick with our own. And so they sold Joseph into slavery. They tried to kill him, and they sold him into slavery. They tried to go around God's plan. And that's what we do. When we aren't walking by faith, when we're stiff-necked, we're like that horse that says, I'm not following them around that trail. I'm going to, I'm going to do a shortcut, right? We, we go our own way. When things change up in our lives, and guys, this, this, has, this has shoes on it. Like, I, I, I live this out so many times in my life. Like, things, I don't know about you, but I'm a planner. Like, I love things to go according to my expectations. I have young kids. Like, we have all sorts of schedules and everything. And when something disrupts that, I get angry. I get frustrated and I get upset when I have projects at work that I'm working on and, and one of you knuckleheads comes in and messes everything up, right? Joking. Uh, I get upset. I get frustrated. I get angry and I try to force my way through and stick with my plan and then I get angry. I get angry at God. I get angry at people and I'm not at peace. And yet when we walk by faith, we say, okay, curveball. I see that coming. I'm getting frustrated. What's God doing? What's God doing here? Is God sovereign over this? Yeah. Is God good? Yeah. Does he have better plans than me? Yeah, okay. I can walk through this. I can walk with him in the midst of this. Uh, my wife uh, lives this out every day of her life. Uh, she stays at home with our young kids, and nothing ever goes according to her plans. And she's constantly having to pivot, constantly having to think through, okay, God, this, my family is melting down right now, and yet you're still God. You're still good. How can I trust you? What are you doing in this moment? That's how you walk by faith. You're like, what is it for you? What are the moments in your life, in your week, in your days where things just go haywire? How do you respond? What is that gut reaction? How can you walk by faith in those moments? How many of you have you seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Classic, Christmas classic? Oh, my goodness. Please raise your hands again. How many have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. Thank you. There we go. That makes me feel better. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. Uh, you hate Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. It's got Jimmy Stewart in it, and an angel comes to him, and he gets to go back and get a second chance, whatever. But there's a scene in the movie where he's angry at life. Everything's going according to his plan, and he's in his old drafty house, and, and he walks in, and it's like his kid's got a cold. He's like, I hate this drafty house. And then he goes down the staircase, and he grabs the banister, and the top falls off. He's like, ah, and he like goes to throw, and he's just angry, and, and everything's going wrong, and he hates the house. He hates everything about it. And then he goes through this experience where he gets to look at life without him, and his perspective changes. All of a sudden, he sees, actually, these bad things are actually good. These are parts of the joy in life. And then you see him kind of reborn, and he goes back in that same moment. He goes in the house, and he goes up the stairs, and he grabs the banister, and it comes off, and he says, oh, I love you, and he kisses it, and he puts it back on. And then, and then he feels like this, this air coming in the house. He's like, I love this drafty house. It's incredible, right? What, what changed? Did the house change? He changed. Nothing changed about his situation. And we got to be real careful in our lives that we don't view that rescue, redemption comes from a situation change, right? Our circumstances are a gift from God, right? Like Noah up here, he didn't have a mic because he doesn't have a voice, right? It's a gift from God. Aaron last night at 10 o'clock had to start singing songs to try to learn how to lead this morning, right? It's because it's a gift from God. Yet God blessed us through it and blessed the worship team as well, right? These things are gifts from God. And if we view it like that, we can begin to walk by faith in that aspect of our lives. I spent way too long on that one. Let's go to number three. To walk by faith in the Holy Spirit. It didn't go according to my plan. Um, to walk by faith in the Holy Spirit is to depend on his resources. It changes our provision. To depend on his resources. So with Stephen, when the scribes and the rabbis from these prestigious synagogues disputed with him, rather than digging into the well of his own wisdom, whose wisdom did he look for? Spirits, right? Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, I'm sure Stephen was a pretty sharp dude. 
But when he was disputing with these guys, when they were coming against him, he didn't dip into his own resources. He dipped into the Lord's. He looked up and said, God, I need you in this moment. Give me wisdom to speak. And then he's standing before the council, right? And he's saying, God, I need you. Give me wisdom to speak. And then he's, I'm sure he's getting to the end of this speech, right? And he knows he's about to tell, like God is, is he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. He's like, I'm about to tell them they're stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Like, this is not going to go well. And yet he's like, God, help me. And he delivers it with boldness. He walks by faith because he depends on the Lord's resources. But look at the Israelites, um, verses 17 through 34. Um, what happened uh, they, they were in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years. Their babies were being getting thrown into the Nile. They were crying out to God for help. They knew they needed help, okay? They're in a moment of crisis, and yet God sends Moses, and what do they do? They thrust him aside. They say, we don't want that deliverer. We want another deliverer. We want deliverance by our own hand. We don't want, we don't want someone that ra- was raised in Pharaoh's house to deliver us. Why? Why do they respond that way? It's pride. Right? Pride in our hearts keeps us from accepting the Lord's provision. It keeps us from looking to him for help. We say, I can do this. I've got this. And we build our life around our own strength. Right? If, if, you're, if you're walking in your own strength day in and day out, and you're not looking to the Lord, it's a result of pride in your own heart. And God calls us to a life of humility. God calls us to walk with him. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. He'll be like a shrub in the desert. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of the water. Of water. Do you trust in man? Do you make your own flesh your strength? Or are you walking in the provision of the Lord? And this looks like moment by moment. You hit hard moments in your day. Your first response is, now, okay, change of plans. What do we do? Your first, your first response is, Father, help me. I need you. Help me in this moment with my kids. Help me in this moment with my boss. God, I'm struggling in loneliness and singleness. Help me in this moment. What do you need from the Lord? You trust him with it. Look for his provision. Number four, to walk by faith in the Holy Spirit is to aim our lives at pleasing God. It's to aim our lives at pleasing God. Walking by faith changes who we please. It changes who we please. Stephen, he could have helped the widows for his own glory, right? Like, people think we're pretty good if we're going around serving people food, right? Food pantry, he could have done that for his own glory. He could have done signs and wonders on the street for his own glory, right? Like, I can do this for my own glory. I can get up here and preach and make y'all laugh, and I can do it for my own glory, right? Those are things he can do for his own glory. Um, he could have disputed with these rabbis for his own glory, won that argument for his own, he felt pretty good about himself, but to get dragged before the council, away from all of his friends, no one's going to know what he says in front of this council. And yet he knows that he's called to basically preach his death sentence. That takes a man who's looking beyond himself. He's not looking to please anyone but God. He's not looking to please himself, surely. He's not looking to please this council. He's looking to please God. And that's what God has called us to do. Yet when you look at Acts 7 in the Israelites in verse 35, they're looking to please themselves. They take God's gifts when they're in the wilderness, and, and, and Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, and they say, I don't know what's happened to this Moses. And that, that law that God was giving him sounded really strict. So we're going to make our own idol. And we're going to worship it instead. And it says they took the jewels that God gave them, the ornaments, and they had Aaron melt them down and they turned them into an idol. So what they did is they melted down God's gifts. They turned God's gifts into an idol to please themselves. In Exodus, it says they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That is a very tame way of describing this giant immoral party that they had to this golden calf. They were seeking their own pleasure. And Aaron, what was Aaron seeking? Aaron was seeking to please man. He was, he was called by God to lead this people when Moses was absent, and yet he, he melted down this, this metal and made a golden calf to please them, right? 
are you seeking to please yourself with your life or seeking to please God? And guys, this is, this is something that really seeps through every aspect of, of our lives. Like, when I look at different areas in my life, there's different people I'm trying to please. I don't know if y'all noticed that. Like, in my life, like at home, I'm trying to please my wife, I'm trying to make her happy. I'm trying to make sure everything at home is at peace. And then I go to work, and I'm, I'm trying to please whoever I'm at lunch with, or I'm trying to please Andrew. I'm trying to seem impressive. I come up here. I want to please you guys. I, I get, have a weekend or, a, or an evening off, and I want to please myself. I want to be comfortable. Who are you trying to please with your life? Walking by faith is looking up and saying, I live my life before the face of God. And my goal is to please him. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we walk by faith and not by sight, and we make it our aim to please him. Have you made it your aim in your life to please God? If you, if you don't, if you haven't, then you're not walking by faith. You're walking stiff-necked, and you're resisting the Lord. Number five, the last one, to walk by faith in the Holy Spirit is to live our lives in his presence. So presence is that last word, to live our lives in his presence. It changes how we see God's presence. Stephen walked in God's presence. How do I know that? Because his face was shining like an angel, okay? Like, this wasn't your grandmother's tree topper, all right? This isn't like Cupid, like cute little baby face. Like, he's radiating the glory of God, like shining forth God's glory. He's at perfect peace, and he's got a message for them. That's what angels did right? And that's where Stephen was. He was walking in the presence of God. He knew that he didn't need to go to church or a quiet time to walk in God's presence. He could walk in God's presence at the crisis moment of his life, the moment that's going to lead to his death. It changes the way we see the presence of God. Not so with the Israelites. If you look at the text that we read in verse 44, uh, Stephen starts talking about the temple and the tent of meeting. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? What he's saying is, is that originally God was a pilgrim God. And he moved around with the people of Israel, and he was just with them. He was just with the people of Israel. And then they got Canaan, and they got this land, and Solomon built a temple. And then all of a sudden, the Jews started seeing God's presence as synonymous with the temple. He said, God only meets with us there. So our Redeemer can only come from that temple. And our rescue can only come from there. And our worship only goes on there. And God is only with us in those moments in that temple, rather than seeing that God was a, was a pilgrim God. God goes wherever his people go. He dwells in the midst of his people, right? So they began to worship a place. And what they did is they divided secular and sacred, right? That's the key word for us. Have you divided secular and sacred in your life? Have you taken your life and chopped it up into little bits and said, God, you can have these bits right here. So we talked about with the first one, priorities. Have these bits of Sunday morning and my quiet times and whatever. Whatever bits there, I don't care if it's like 80 hours of your week. Are you giving him bits? If you divided sacred from secular, you know that God walks with you in your life. He's a pilgrim God. He goes with you to work. He's with you in your home. He's with you in your sleep. He's with you in your leisure. He's with you when you go somewhere for Thanksgiving with your in-laws who drive you crazy. God's with you in those moments. You can walk in his presence. Is that how you live? Or are you like the Israelites? Do you, do you conveniently divide secular from the sacred? And that sounds difficult. It sounds like, well, it's better for God to be with me so I don't have to go somewhere to worship. But it's actually a lot harder because once we invite God into every area of our life, things get a lot more confusing. Because all of a sudden, our, our desires are at war within us. All of a sudden, my weekend's not my own to plan. I'm living in the presence of God. All of a sudden, there aren't silent moments in my life, right, where I cut off the, the mic and I can do whatever I want, say whatever I want. God's with me in those moments. I walk in his presence. Um, just thinking about uh, my kids, like, what, what if I, I've got a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a 10-month-old, um, what if I gave my kids office hours, okay? Like, all right, Tuesday and Thursday, two to four, all right? I'm all yours. Like, whatever you want, all your needs, just bring them to me at that point in time, and, and come to me then, all your prayer questions, write them down. If you've if you got a crisis on Sunday, write it down and bring it to me on Tuesday, right? 
what would happen, right? When, when something happened Saturday night, what would they do? Would they write it down and bring it to me on Tuesday? No. They would go somewhere else, wouldn't they? They'd run somewhere else. When we divide the sacred from the secular, when we view God as only existing in certain spaces, then what happens is we run other places. We escape to other means. We look to other gods to rescue us instead of looking to the Lord who's with us in those moments. What have you done? You divided sacred from secular. Are you walking and living your life in the presence of God? Um, let me conclude with this. Ultimately, uh, this passage is not about Stephen. It's not about the Jews. It's about God. Right? It's about the glory of God. It's about the God who is patient with his people. I don't know if you heard it, but as I read this passage again and again and again, every time the Israelites were stiff-necked and resisted God, every time they thrust aside his deliverer, every time they built a calf and worshipped it, every time they obeyed halfway, God was patient again and again and again. Abraham, he came back to Abraham, and he led Abraham to the promised land eventually. He came back to Joseph's brothers even though they sold him into slavery, and he rescued him from a famine. He came back to the Israelites. He sent Moses back 40 years later. God didn't say, fine, cleaning my hands of you, I'm done. He came back and made a covenant with the Israelites after they worshipped the calf. And, and he came back and pursued the Jews after they'd worshipped the temple. He comes back again and again. God is a patient God. This is a story about the patience of God. It's also a story about his faithfulness. God keeps every promise. Again and again and again. He kept his promise to, to Abraham. He kept his promise to Joseph. He kept his promise to Israel. And he keeps his promises to us. And he has promised you in your life that, that if you'll walk by faith, he's a good rider. He's not like James. Not sitting on your back, a five-year-old, whipping the reins one way or another, seeing what you're going to do. He's a good rider. You can trust him. Even when he turns you off the path and goes away that you don't know where you're going and it's, and it's scary, you can trust him. He's a good rider. Will you walk with him? Will you trust the Lord? Will you walk in his presence? And ultimately, Christ came to show us the patience and the faithfulness of God. He came to show us that God, God is not a God that is perpetually angry. He's a God that is inviting people to come and experience his goodness, to walk in his faithfulness, to live life with him. So I invite you. If you don't know Christ, or if you've been straying away, going your own way, stiff-necked and resisting the Spirit, will you come back to him? He's so patient. He'll invite you back with open arms. Let's pray. Ben gets up here and we'll sing one more song. Father, we, um, we love you. I'm so humbled by your patience with me. So humbled by your faithfulness, God. I, I don't deserve for you to be faithful. I don't deserve for you to be patient with me, and yet you are. And God, I pray that we would be a church of men and women and children that walk by faith, that don't go our own way, don't resist the Holy Spirit, but look to you for help. God, we need you. God, I thank you for, for your history. God, all throughout history that we can look back at, at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We can look back at the Israelites. We can look back at Moses. We can look back at, at your people. And we can see again and again and again that you were faithful. And then we look back on our lives. We can see you are a faithful God. You love us. You're with us. You walk with us. You know us. You care for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you, help us to walk with you. God, I pray that um, these people in this room this week would take one step further each day this week as they examine their lives and look, am I walking by faith? Am I walking a stiff-necked life? And we love you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand with me. We're going to sing one more song and worship.